0: Welcome to The New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zacharin, assistant editor of The New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books and Law. Today I'm speaking with Rohit Day, associate professor of history at Yale University, about his book, A People's Constitution, The Everyday Life of Law in the Indian Republic, from Princeton University Press. A People's Constitution explores how the Indian Constitution, enacted in 1950, impacted the lives of ordinary citizens. Rohit explores the meaning of the Indian Constitution through four key cases, deftly guiding readers through the intricacies and outcomes. Rohit, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Of course, uh, you know this, this is a really interesting book, and I would also say uh, just a really, a really well-written, clear book. So I, I think you, you did an excellent job, uh, just in, in, in laying things out. So if, if anyone's looking for a good example of how to write a book that that is just really easy to jump into any section. I, I think that, that that I would definitely recommend recommend this book. But before talking about the book, I was just wondering if you could tell me a little bit about yourself and your background. Um, sure. So I uh, grew up in India,
1: and I went to law school as an undergraduate. Um, law is uh, an undergraduate in India. And I was going to law school at a time when um, there was a profound transformation in the Indian legal system. So um, on the one hand, there was a... Um, emerging critique of how um, the Indian legal system, particularly the courts, are unable to deliver um, justice and remedies. Um, Pendency rates of litigation in India are incredibly long. Uh, civil cases take 80 years sometimes to settle. But alongside this was a rise in um, uh, a number of movements, particularly social movements, who were successfully able to use the courts to make certain kinds of claim and in some ways build the basis of India's welfare state. So. The courts recognized the right to education, the right to food, which led to new legislative policies and new sort of uh, um, new sort of bureaucratic changes uh, that transformed people's lives meaningfully. And I was grappling with the question of how is a system that is so defunct in so many ways still able to do some of these things? Um, I first came to the U.S. To, with the intention of being a legal scholar in a very traditional sense, um, but as I was working in an American law school, it, it also sort of struck me that uh, the Indian legal system um, functions in English, a language that a very small percentage of people understand. Much of the legislative framework, um, the way law is organized or understood, was developed under British colonial rule. Uh, yet, it had sort of been adapted very naturally. Um, uh, Indians use the legal system um, in in multiple ways. Uh, and there wasn't this question of, um, this is illegitimate that ever came up. So it got me curious about thinking, how is it that a system that's developed under colonialism uh, function after the country becomes independent. Um, and this sort of prompted me to sort of turn towards history and engage in sort of deeper historical study.
0: Yeah. So, you know, I, I was wondering if uh, if you could talk a little about some of the, the materials, archival or secondary sources that you looked at that helped you put together uh, the stories that you ultimately tell.
1: Um, I mean, there's been, uh, I think I was part of a generation of scholars uh, who were trying to write about Um, Indian constitutional law very differently. So uh, when I sort of began my PhD, constitutional law or writings about the constitution uh, had two audiences. One was lawyers and the focus really was on knowing what the law is so that lawyers can practice. So it heavily focused on judgments and it tried to distill principles out of judgments. So the question is like, what's the legal rule that comes out of the case? And the second kind of reading was usually for people who were training to join government. So potential civil servants. And it wasn't seen as something that ordinary people had to be engaged with or educate themselves about. And um, uh, traditional historians um, had often been deeply skeptical about the law's um, ability to uh, offer any kind of uh, progressive change. Um, The general understanding was law is a kind of handmaiden of power. So the important thing to understand is how politics changes and then all legal changes can be explained. And I think partly my own training as a lawyer, and I'd worked at the Supreme Court as a, as a law clerk for some time, um, had made me very conscious about the fact that the law has a certain degree, maybe very minimal, of autonomy. And um, it often uh, produces unexpected results that cannot only be explained in terms of rationalizing it as power. So I wanted to sort of um, write something that engaged with both of these. And I was trying to figure out how to write this. Um, And in some ways, my introduction to American legal history was helpful. Um, In some ways, Americans take their legal history uh, as granted. Uh, Americans made the law. It's in the language that uh, most Americans speak and understand. Um, So the models were useful, but the questions were different. And I think one thing that a lot of American historians did was to explore the social life behind court cases. And uh, a search for this led me to um, the archives of the Supreme Court of India, uh, which preserves all its case records from its inception these archives had never been used. They were just seen as a kind of reference material for uh, lawyers and judges for the future. They didn't even really have a mechanism of a historian to consult them. And even when I sort of, after a long protracted way managed to get access, uh, the chief justice asked me, why do you want to see the files? The judgment is available on the website. But once you look at the file, you realize that what the judgment is, is a very small slice of what happened and is often uh, not an accurate reconstruction of what was happening before uh, the court. So I was interested in telling a story about constitutional litigation, which focused not on what the judges wrote, but how a certain kind of question became a constitutional question, um, how it was argued, and what the life of that court decision was after the judgment was
0: pronounced. Following up on that point, if, if you could discuss a little bit of, of the history and enactment of the Indian constitution, how did, how did the constitution uh, come to law? And you also, I think, uh, you, you compare its enactment to other uh, post-colonial, uh, nations and how, how its constitution differs pretty considerably. So I, I was wondering if you would just talk about those points.
1: Absolutely. So um, the Indian constitution is um, sort of given by its people in January 1950. Uh, but the constitution making process starts in 46 um, as part of the British plans for departure. Uh, a conservative assembly is elected indirectly from the various provincial uh, legislative assemblies. Um, it's um, uh, not on universal franchise, but it's still a lot more representative than any other constitution-making body at its time. Um, and the assembly takes sort of three years of deliberation to um, um, sort of write the document. Um, this is in contrast with sort of almost every other British post-colonial setting. So there are only two other uh, countries that elect control assemblies, Pakistan and Israel at that time, and neither assembly is able to reach agreement on a document. The Pakistani assembly is dismissed and the Israeli assembly is unable to define a document. In most uh, post-colonial, British post-colonial countries, the constitution is written through a negotiation by elites. So they all come to London and they discuss it with the uh, uh, British administration and produce a document, or it's sort of given to them by um, uh, a foreign power. So uh, take, for example, um, you know, the Japanese constitution, which effectively General MacArthur sort of pushes through during um, the US occupation of Japan, which still, which still Um it's also an interesting constitutional process, uh, a book that I'm working on at present with Ornith Shani, which sort of contrasted to even earlier attempts at constitution writing. So for example, when the Americans gathered in Philadelphia, uh, the discussions inside the convention were closed to the public. In fact, what we know of them is because of what people wrote before and after. Uh, and even more recently, when South Africa was writing its constitution, the idea was that these debates should not be in the public. You want to immunize constitutional debate from public emotions. But very early on, the Indian debates were broadcast on the national, uh, on, the, on, on the radio. They were actively reported upon in the papers, and ordinary members of the public heavily involved themselves in the process, writing to the assembly, uh, passing resolutions, discussing things with each other. So there was a very early sense of public ownership about the document. Um, it's also uh, lasted uh, for a significant period of time. So... Political scientists who do these sort of um, uh, quantitative um, uh, maths sort of suggest that an average life of a constitution is something like 20 years. And sort of if you go into sort of uh, Asia and Africa, more newly independent countries, even shorter. In fact, all of India's neighboring countries have had uh, two to three to four constitutions around the same period of independence. And while the Indian constitutions often had periods of crisis, the constitution itself has remained one that at least all political parties and actors are
0: publicly committed to. And um, that's also a question that I wanted to understand: Why is why has this been possible? In the introduction, you discuss uh, different sort of in- receptions of the constitution, the constitution as triumph, as illusion. Uh, wh- what do you mean by by these uh, interpretations? And you know, what's the kind of the general perception of of the the impact of the constitution on on society?
1: So, uh, a lot of um, um, both scholars and public actors have des- described the Indian Constitution as a kind of um, a triumph of uh, a new imagination of justice and freedom, uh, and it does a lot of things. For example, it produces universal adult franchise uh, well before one could argue many countries in the West have it. So um, you know, even before the Civil Rights Act is enacted, and you know, African Americans have voting rights in the South. The Indian Constitution grants uh, equal voting rights to uh, all communities, including those who've been historically disenfranchised and socially excluded. Uh, the constitution also very consciously takes on economic and social justice as um, uh, direct policies for the states and produces a series of uh, commitments in the document, both enforceable and non-enforceable. And uh, sort of political theorists who have talked about it, like Hannah Arendt, have always suggested that when uh, you, ca- you can either have political freedom or you can have economic justice, and if you try to combine the two, you get a kind of authoritarian government. Uh, and by and large, for the longest period of India's um, history. Uh, you've managed to combine a democratic government with at least a public commitment to social dist- uh, social justice and redistribution. Um, so this is the kind of triumph story, uh, and it's often credited. The triumph story also credits a lot of this achievement to the far-sighted founding fathers and mothers of the country. And you know, different people have different favorites, but you know, it's this galaxy of leaders who are clearly seen as great men and women who were benevolently creating this constitution, giving it to the public. The other side is a kind of curious critique that comes from both the right and the left. Um, they point out that the constitution is um, largely, in many parts, a direct reproduction of the British Government of India Act. Um, they talk about the fact that many of the rights that are given have immediate qualifications. So, you know, your right freedom of speech is restricted on the grounds of national security, on uh, foreign relations with other countries, on defamation. Uh, In fact, every right comes with a restriction, and the only communist member of the assembly once said these rights are from the point of view of a police constable. Um, They also point out that many of the goals of redistribution are just stated as goals. In the original document, there is no mechanism to enforce them. Um, It also allows, in the document itself, the possibility of suspending the constitution, which India, uh, for the longest time, uh, was in the 1970s when you could suspend the constitution by declaring a national emergency uh, because of an internal crisis or war. Um, On the right, uh, the argument is that this is a foreign constitution because it is following uh, sort of enlightenment ideas uh, which are not indigenous to India. Uh, It's not an organic document. Uh, It's a combination, a patchwork of borrowed foreign ideas. And what we need to do is go back to some older pre-colonial form of organizing. Um, And uh, what I hope to show is uh, that we can't get this answer from only looking at the text of the constitution or the people who produced it. But try try to think of the effect of the Constitution and the kind of public role it played in public consciousness and imagination.
0: What are some of the the key provisions of the Constitution? Like you know, you know, in America, people will, will focus on the First Amendment, for example, this, you know that or the you know the articles that uh, that delineate how the you know the the, the three branches of government work. Uh, how how would you sort of it just in a brief brush overview describe the Constitution? So India, I think, now is the second longest constitution in the world.
1: Um, it has over 400 provisions. Um, it uh, extensively details um, a, a variety of rules and regulations. Um, and uh, I, and I wouldn't want to dismiss this because what it shows is, uh, from very early on, there's an imagination that power cannot be concentrated in one wing of government. Um, so for example, it creates an autonomous election commission, it creates an autonomous um, uh, uh, Auditor General's office, which which, which audits public accounts, uh, it writes in certain rules of federalism, it protects the independence of the judiciary in fairly complex ways. So for example, to increase the salary of judges, you have to amend the constitution because the salaries and retirement are written into the document itself. Uh, in terms of sort of um, clauses, sections people talk about, uh, there's a lot of, uh, the, the two sections talked about the most perhaps are the sections on fundamental rights, which I think for the first time in India, um, in any sort of polity, declares all people to be equal But it's not just a formal invocation of equality, it also recognizes that formal equality, like many classical constitutions have, has no meaning when society is inherently unequal. So the constitution itself provides that the state can take any actions that might violate equality to address the interests of groups that are seen as socially and economically uh, marginalized or the interests of women and children. So you could have a law, for example, which gave special rights to women and it would not violate the Equality Clause. Um, The other section that's talked about a lot is the directive principles of state policy, which um, lay out a wide range of goals, uh, some of which are are sort of commitments to redistribution, minimum wage, equal pay for men and women, uh, uh, government subsidized childcare, And some, I think, are more unresolved cultural questions that whether the state should um, create a uniform family law code for people of all faiths um, or to, as I talk in the book, uh, the protection of cows from slaughter. Um, these are not enforceable, but are meant to guide government policy. And over the years have been declared enforceable by the courts, um, uh, particularly from the 1970s uh, onwards. Uh, and the final thing, which is a cause of a lot of controversy, are provisions that allow for suspensions of rights uh, during declared emergencies. Um, but there isn't a kind of um, a public imagination which says Article 15 or Article 14 or Article 21. But what we do see is a kind of awareness and engagement that the Constitution stands for something. And we really saw this uh, maybe in 2019, when India amended its citizenship law, which caused differential standards of citizenship for people of different faiths. And there were a vast number of public protests where the public protest was reading out the preamble to the Constitution. Uh, It's a short preamble, and it clearly lays down sort of the goals of the polity. And it was, in a way, invoking, uh, invoking not a specific text, but the spirit behind the Constitution. So the Indian Constitution is very easily amendable. It's had over 104 amendments. But the Supreme Court has declared that these amendments cannot violate what they call the basic structure, the basic principles behind the Constitution, which are coming to de- democracy, secularism, uh, judicial independence, things like that.
0: Yeah. So, so with, with that overview, I think it's probably uh, we, we can uh, talk about some of the cases uh, that you discussed, because I think like you, you're already starting to, to, to jump into uh, some of these ones you mentioned, cow slaughter. Uh, but the, the first one you talk about is you call it the case of the constable's nose, and that's a discussion of prohibition in the Indian Constitution, uh, and that particular case that you discuss uh, around policing prohibition in Bombay. So I was wondering if you could you could talk about that case uh, and the and the outcomes of that.
1: Sure. So I mean, one of the reasons why I maybe just tell you a little bit about why I picked these cases. Uh, the question I always why did I did I just pick sort of examples that work for me? Um, I one of the provisions that was very impactful but is rarely talked about was a small procedural provision which allowed any Indian citizen to move the High Court or the Supreme Court on almost any matter that involved, in the Supreme Court's case, fundamental rights, but in the High Court, any question of justice. And this was something that did not exist in the colonial period. People have even argued the government never anticipated this. So immediately after the Constitution coming in, almost from day one, the courts began to be flooded by these writ petitions. Where people were challenging all kinds of government policies around these questions. There was also a time when the government was really expanding its reach in society, so there were lots of new laws and lots of lots of new rules. So I was interested in finding an areas of law where the government was trying to do something new, perhaps to address commitments made in the freedom movement, and they were facing opposition from citizens in courts through these sort of procedural applications. And I also wanted to focus on. I mean, a lot of writing had has focused on high, uh, the kind of like high political cases about uh, opposition members of parliament of freedom of speech. And I wanted to pick cases that reflected some sense of everyday life. So as I was looking through, I kept finding these cases arising out of um, prohibition arrests. So uh, the Indian constitution has a kind of commitment to enforcing prohibition of alcohol. Its roots go back to the Gandhian movement. And uh, while it's a matter of sort of just principle in the constitution, several states in India enacted prohibition laws. Um, The state of what was then Bombay was one of them. And these laws were draconian. Uh, it shifted burden of proof. It criminalized possession. Uh, it allowed for wide search, uh, search and powers. And about 50,000 people were arrested in the first few years alone. And the arrests are only a small part of the number of people who probably harassed or, or, or questioned by police constables. So the case begins with what is a very innocuous case of a car accident. Um, and the, bus, the driver is found not to be driving um, uh, irregularly. He's not even drunk. But the constable smells alcohol on his breath, not enough to qualify him as drunk, but su- suggesting that he's drunk some alcohol. And he's prosecuted not for bad driving, but for violation of prohibition laws. So the chapter sort of explains how this came to be and how eventually this um, attempt to prosecute him under prohibition laws feels because of other constitutional challenges to
0: the prohibition regime. What, what would you see, say is uh, to sort of summarize maybe the, the outcome of that or what that says about everyday citizens' ability to... Uh, to challenge power uh, using the constitution? So
1: prohibition was a fairly non-controversial part of constitution-making and even the legislature. Almost no politician publicly uh, advocated not bringing in prohibition. There were a few exceptions, mostly minorities representing tribal groups for whom alcohol was not seen as something that had social opprobrium. Um, So it had vast popular support. Apparently, the ruling party that was elected had committed to it for years. And uh, there was sort of no ability to question that prohibition is something that should be good as policy. However, uh, the challenge that was brought to it was brought not on the grounds that prohibition itself is a bad idea, but that the rules that set up this prohibition regime violated a number of different rights. It violated, for example, the right to equality because prohibition applied to, uh, the prohibition regime had a series of exemptions for army officers, for diplomats, for foreigners. And they basically said, how can you have two different standards? In fact, during colonial rule, we were fighting for equality between uh, Europeans and Indians, Why is that Europeans in India can drink. Um, They also attacked the powers of policemen to sort of arbitrarily search and and, and seize. Um, And while there were, and this was given, uh, uh, um, uh, there was a lot of popular interest in this, partly because while you couldn't challenge prohibition in terms of political rhetoric, people were facing the effects of the police action in their everyday lives. Ultimately, the Supreme Court of India gave what it thought was a very conservative judgment. So they say that the government can enact prohibition. We agree that prohibition uh, is a stated policy. Uh, it upheld some rules, though it's chucked some some of the rules down on policing. They said the police was overzealous. But by and large, you could have a police force enforcing it. But it did say one thing. It says the constitution only allows you to prohibit alcohol that is meant to be drunk. It cannot prohibit alcohol for any other purpose. So if you go back to the drunk driver, his argument in court was, I had just drunk a medicinal tonic that happened to have alcohol in it. So I have not violated prohibition laws, and it's your job to prove to me that I actually drank prohibited alcohol. And following this case, there's a burst of, I looked at advertising, a burst of manufacturing of health tonics, which clearly um, were alcohol companies rebranding in other ways. Uh, and it's kind of undoes the prohibition regime in India. And and finally, Bombay has to call off prohibition in the 1960s.
0: Yeah, that, that's uh, really interesting. It's also interesting how that, see, that exact uh, cause or sort of undoing of prohibition is... It seems to be the case in in many places where yep. prohibition was tried. Of course, yeah, medical tonic uh, is is the the route. Uh, the the second case you discuss has to do with uh, with economic activity, trade, uh, and administrative law. Uh, and you know, I was wondering if you could you could you could discuss the cases here and the laws that you address, and just the kind of the uh, what the Constitution has to say and what the judges have to say about uh, economic activity.
1: So the Indian constitution gives a lot of power to um, the government to regulate questions of the economy. Um, And uh, when India became independent, it was in sort of deep crisis, recovering from sort of the Second World War and famine. And there were a number of emergency regulations made during the war, um, not just in India, but in Britain and the US, which allowed the wartime government to control all aspects of economic, uh, not just economic production, but also sale and consumption. So you had these bureaucrats who would enact rules saying, you have to make X number of like um, cotton shirts to be sold at this price. Um, now, in the West, um, all these rules were all these controls were removed after the war because the emergency no longer existed. But Indian politicians argued that the country was in a state of permanent emergency because poverty was an emergency. Right? So, for India's economic development, you needed these emergency measures that often violated natural principles, of criminal law, by targeting what they call economic offenders. In fact, the government said that you know a murderer only kills one person. An economic offender who hurts the economy hurts many more. Uh, again, it had a, it was built on a popular rhetoric. It targeted um, uh, merchants and businessmen. And given sort of the way caste works in India, many of these belong to uh, the same communities. They were in some ways uh, in the ironic position of being an elite community with considerable financial resources, but a political minority, which did not have a large sort of voter share that was backing them. And uh, In the colonial period, they had a lot of power and influence, but they no longer had the ability to sort of command that democratically. So they had to find a new language through which they could um, defend themselves. So I first came across a number of these economic offense cases. And from looking at people's names, I realized they all belong to the Marwari community. And the cases are all brought as individuals. and, and, And the argument is at no point that they're targeting people of our community. The argument always is that these rules have been made by bureaucrats and they have exceeded the power that bureaucrats have been given by Parliament, so it's a very technical question in a criminal case where they've been arrested for, say, smuggling cotton. They said the cotton smuggling rules were were enacted in excess of power that the bureaucrat was given, and in a democracy, you can't bureaucrats cannot have unrestricted power. Uh, it was very effective because it shifted the question from being is this person an economic criminal to uh, was the bureaucrat acting beyond the bounds of what um, um, uh, democracy allows. And clearly, because these were sort of rich litigants, they were able to bring a lot of cases, had influential lawyers, and set the terms of the debate. And um, this is perhaps for most people my least popular chapter because the, uh, the people involved are not people who draw your natural sympathy. But I think what they show is um, you, there is an ability in which your identity as an individual can be subsumed when you sort of adopt a procedural argument and this applies not just to an elite powerful group but also to say a group that is socially unpopular historically marginalized when it stops being a question of their identity but becomes a question of has the state
0: exceeded its power over the lives of ordinary citizens is it is there a you know a general uh, rule that is de- that is used to determine whether or not there's been this overreach um like a principle that is followed or is uh, like, a case by case basis absolutely So the principle i forget the latin term uh, is basically that to the one whom you
1: delegate power to, they cannot delegate the power further. Uh, And you know, every common law country has it, but the judicial tests for it are different in different countries and they change over time. And India did not have this in uh, a very developed fashion in before independence. So when it sort of starts in the 1950s, um, also the British did not have a written constitution. They relied on convention, their parliament a lot more power. There's an interesting moment when um, Indian judges start turning to American law textbooks and then trying to find a kind of middle ground between American law and, and British law to sort of create an Indian standard. Um, and the American government and academy is very invested in this. So they send textbooks to India and they sort of train Indian judges. Uh, and some of the earliest Indian um, English law textbooks are written by Indian scholars when they're in the U.S.
0: Oh, uh, that's really interesting. I, not something, something I knew. Uh, yeah, the, the next the next chapter it's interesting. By the, by the way, you said that 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 chapter was your your most unpopular. I, I, I guess it's because. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to go into why I think that, but <laughs> uh, so yeah, maybe less sympathetic uh, the, the merchants. But uh, your next chapter, th- this is the chapter that I just found so fascinating. Um, I think it was the one that that I just was yeah glued to it was it was about the constitutionality of of cow slaughter, and uh, I believe that you use the term a uh, uh, bovine litigation, which I think is a great term. Uh, so I was wondering if you could just talk about you know the uh, the constitutionality of cow-, of cow slaughter and uh, you know the the ability for, uh, for certain groups uh, who are, are not Hindu to, to participate in cow slaughter? So
1: I think, um, um, I mean, we have to go back a little back into history. So um, several Hindu scriptures um, say the cow is a sacred animal and, and should not be slaughtered or eaten. Um, this is despite the fact that, you know, several Hindus do eat beef um, in their sort of ordinary business life. Uh, upper caste Hindus in particular refrain from eating beef. Uh, During the nationalist movement, um, mobilization around cow slaughter became an important um, way of organizing people. Uh, It was partly because this is a time when, um, uh, you know, uh, religious identities become central to the making of nations, but also because under the British rule, one of the few rights you were allowed to have was your right to religion. So if you framed a political demand as a religious demand, you could sort of legitimately sort of advocate for it. Um, And advocating for cow slaughter also helped create a sense of a community that separated hindus who were divided on many many things into one unit by defining themselves against other communities that eat beef whether it's muslims or christians or other lower caste hindus um when the constitution was being written there was no mention of caste slaughter in the original draft and this is one of the few provisions that comes really through pressure from below so um, thousands of hindu groups wrote letters telegrams to the constituent assembly demanding that the constitution must have a clause for caste slaughter and some members tried to introduce in a a clause under fundamental rights, suggesting that it is the fundamental right of an individual to protect the cow. Uh, Eventually, a compromise is worked out in the assembly between those who feel this is overreach or perhaps not something that a a secular nation should do, and those who very much feel committed to cow slaughter. Uh, And the provision is curiously worded. It says that the state should endeavor to uh, prohibit the slaughter of cattle in the interest of economic development and animal husbandry. So it's not stated that we should Prevent cow slaughter because cows are sacred to Hinduism, uh, and we know that this is brokered through a, a, a compromise behind the doors. Uh, however, once the country becomes independent, several provis- uh, provincial governments enact fairly draconian cow slaughter laws, um, and these involve everything from criminalizing, like the prohibition laws, possession of beef, uh, eating of beef, uh, uh, you know, transporting cattle under suspicion, and given that historically. Um, uh, Muslims and lower caste communities had been involved in these trades, um, they are the ones who are targeted by the criminal law. Um, the case is an interesting one, because um, it's it's one that's often taught in Indian law schools as a, as a case test case of freedom of religion. Um, and the case is named by its Muslim protagonist, and the argument is that Muslims came to court and said the right to sacrifice a cow for Eid to commemorate Abraham's sacrifice of his son. Was an essential feature of Islam. And by prohibiting this, you're violating religious freedom. And the Supreme Court decided to sort of read the Quran and say, well, you could also sacrifice a camel or seven goats. And, you know, there are other options available, so it doesn't violate freedom of religion. Um, however, when I looked at the case papers itself, it became quite clear that the petitioners were uninterested in the religious freedom of religion question. It was the last argument made and one to which they didn't even produce any evidence in court. The judges complained about how the Quran arguments were brought by them, not by the lawyers the petitioners mostly belong to a Muslim caste of butchers. So for them, it wasn't a question of just slaughtering the cow and eat, but basically that their entire economic um, uh, trade had collapsed because of these laws. Uh, and they tried to show that in some ways, by um, prohibiting cow slaughter, you're hurting the economic development of the country, because there are all of these important industries that are connected to uh, the cow. Uh, su- there's also a competition, is the cow uh, a sacred animal? But how does that uh, relate to the fact that the uh, cow is also an economic commodity. And we see some of the contradictions play out today. So India has once again enacted fairly draconian cow slaughter laws. And the unintended byproduct of this is that nobody, farmers are not buying cows anymore. Because once uh, a cow sort of uh, is no longer a productive animal, there is a fair amount of cost maintained its upkeep. And and because you can't sort of resell it, um, it destroys the incentives of actually har- har- harvest cattle. So uh, it's, a, it's it's a story where the, the court case reads like it's about freedom of religion. When you start looking at who the petitioners were and how they made their claims, you realize that the actual question is something else. And what's also striking for me was, I've always knew this case as Mohammed Hanif Qureshi versus the state of Bihar, but they had 3,000 named petitioners. And, um, and I show in the chapter why the strategy came to be, and you could not just bring this as one individual. You wanted to show that it affected the entire class of people, and that the petitioner strategy involved sort of going across the country and gathering names and, and having named petitioners there. So it's a sort of early example of a class action litigation, um, even though it's never been recognized as such.
0: The uh, the last case that you look at, and this is also, I, I thought, a really fascinating uh, case, uh, is about the, the the sort of legality of, of sex work. And you look at a particular case, a, a woman uh, who snubbed by, and Sita, and the practice of Sita. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk about the, the, this case,
1: Sure. Uh, I I, I knew I wanted to talk a little bit when I was writing the book about what the constitution does to women's lives. And I sort of assumed when I would look for court cases, I'd find court cases involving either inheritance or marriage, which were sort of issues that Indian feminists had campaigned on, um, or something about sort of workplace discrimination or, you know, some kind of inequality question. Um, I was surprised to discover this case. It's not something that lawyers know much about. Um, but it's one of those cases in the in the government archives, which had a huge amount of correspondence on it. In fact, there was more correspondence on this relatively unimportant case from a provincial court than on sort of big cases before the Supreme Court. So I got quite interested as to why was this case causing so much anxiety, and it's partly because India had a very um, uh, vocal and effective women's movement uh, in the colonial period, and several of the leaders were women who were in the Cultural Assembly for whom freedom was not just freedom of equality, but it also meant um, ending all kinds of burdens on women. And one of the things that they talked about a lot was trafficking women and sort of describing prostitution as akin to slavery and something that the Constitution specifically prohibits by prohibiting forced labor and uh, forced labor and trafficking. However, uh, once they enacted laws to enforce this, uh, the people who were most affected were not perhaps the men who uh, accessed sex workers but the sex workers themselves who were subject to greater police surveillance, uh, harassment, and, and corruption. So the case is interesting because it's fired literally on the same day that the law gets enacted, the Suppression of Immoral Trafficking Act. Uh, the case is also interesting because the petitioner names herself and tells everyone that she's a prostitute. Um, in the past, when women were arrested for prostitution, they would often argue they're not prostitutes. They're just, they are just they have some other profession. They're musicians. Sex work is only one small part of their larger 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 activities. She's not only said she was a prostitute, she said her family, her aged parents, younger brother, uh, all survive on her earnings. So she's also casting herself as a productive citizen and a worker. And she finally says that if you are letting me, if you're not letting me practice my profession, this is a welfare state, you must compensate me for lost earnings because as a prostitute, I do not have the access to a respectable marriage and a man who will support me. Uh, and it's an interesting strategy in many ways because um, it's, Sex work, when it's regulated, usually leads to sex workers going into hiding um, to evade the gaze of the state in some ways. Here, the state, she's actually calling the state to attention. Uh, It also shifts the debate because till now, the debate around sex work was led by women who were middle class or elite women who saw sex workers as, uh, in some ways, women without agency who had to be rescued by their more um, beneficent. So the Indian feminists are deeply discomforted by the case and succeeding cases. Uh, One of them, who is a prominent liberal, Durga Bai Deshmukh writes to the prime minister saying, "We must amend the constitution so that sex prostitutes and beggars cannot claim rights in the constitution in a, in a way that they don't know what's good for them." Um, it discomfited them because here was a sex worker who was speaking in her own voice, or at least what what her petition claimed was her own voice before court, presenting herself not as someone who is without agency um, or um, uh, without uh, uh, ability, but as someone who was a laboring a subject, someone who was a worker. Um, and the judgment actually does not strike the law down. It, it, it says that it recognizes all her claims, but says that, look, the government has taken no action against you. You're in your home. You've not been prosecuted. You've not been evicted. So the, the judgment has no effect in legal terms whatsoever. But because this is the first case under the new law, every subsequent case that comes up, uh, where in many cases a uh, sex worker has been arrest- arrested or evicted from her uh, home, this becomes a strategy to use, so they kind of started reproducing the strategy in different places across the country, uh, with different
0: kinds of effects. With all these cases that you look at, obviously each each case is is uh, fairly different. Um, th- though there is a sort of, uh, at least in some of them, a sort of interesting through line of of economic yeah. um, economic rights. Uh, and I was wondering, you know, if there's a sort of a, a takeaway that that you know a, a lot of these cases are, are historical cases, but if there's a sort of a takeaway that we can Um, you know, listeners can have for understanding, you know, issues today in India around the constitution or just around lawmaking in general? Sure. I mean, it's
1: a question that I I think I have to keep revising my answer to because um, India is also at a moment of sort of constitutional turmoil and change. Um, um, So I think there are a few things that I think is worth noting. Um, One is that for India's anti-colonial leaders, the answer to colonialism was democracy, and you know all people were equal. One person had one vote, um, and you had you know you could you could um, uh, that was where questions were to be resolved. Um, however, if you belong to a group that was sort of a permanent minority, either because of your caste, religious, or gender identity, or because you're from a subgroup that will never get the political numbers to sort of shift policy in your favor, um, then you had very few options. Uh, and this kind of procedural quirk allowed you to sort of go in and 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 force the state to listen to you even outside of an election. So it suggests that democracy is more complex than just elections and, and elections winning. Uh, it was striking that almost every cluster of these cases are people coming in as minorities. And it's also clear that even when they appear as individuals in many cases, like the cases involving the sex workers, they were coordinating with larger groups, they were fundraising, they had a, a variety of organizations that were perhaps invisibly supporting the litigation effort. Uh, Secondly, that very few of these minorities claimed rights as a minority. They claimed rights as rights that every citizen of India should enjoy. So these are rights that are tied usually to procedure and limiting of state power. So these are not special rights that you get as a minority. These are rights for all citizens. And in some ways, this is useful because it helps build up a larger um, constituency of support. Uh, so even though, say, the prohibition laws or the Gauss laws target certain communities, uh, the sort of um, end result which limits police power is something that benefits everyone, right? So there, there's a way in which um, questions of identity get, can be subsumed productively around questions of procedure. The third is a more historic question, which is when India became independent, um, no one knew how the constitution was going to work. Uh, so neither side going in knew who would win. And there was a lot of place to try out new strategies. And arguably, things have changed after 70-plus years. But there is a space of a moment of innovation when a polity is founded. And because these um, Indian ordinary Indians, many of whom we think of as underprivileged in certain ways, were able to do this, uh, it kind of became a learning ground for other groups in the future. So when social movements or, you know, one of the groups that I I don't see in the litigation very much in India are... um, um, Dalits or groups that belong to caste considered cons- formally considered untouchable, yet they start appearing in the courts in the 80s and 90s, making you know similar kinds of moves and claims. So there is a way in which the ability of these groups to do it shows a pathway uh, for the future.
0: The other uh, thing I wanted to, to follow up on is, you know, this book was uh, released originally in, in 2018, so it's been out for for some time. Uh, is there anything that you wrote in it that, you know, you've received some interesting feedback that has made you rethink something that you initially originally put down or, uh, you know, something that you that you wrote that you've just gotten great feedback on and you're like, well, yeah, I really, I, I really broke new ground with that, with that claim. Um, I think one of the, one of the things this book uh, writing the book
1: taught me was that there was considerable public interest around the Indian constitution outside of traditional audiences of scholars and lawyers. Um, uh, I was very much surprised by the public reception of the book, and the book is currently being translated into four Indian languages. Um, I think it's also because it comes at a time when there's a sense that India's constitutional order might change, and uh, people want to look back and think about what is it that we've had and why have we had it. Um, the second kind of question, which I think is a, is is a, is is an important and difficult question, is that okay? I, I show Indians turn to the constitution and. I was asked, uh, "Is this because they aspire to it, or is it because they're desperate and have no other means of of, of sort of protecting themselves?" And I think it's a very um, it's an important question, but I think it's a very uh, reductive way of thinking about constitutions. And I and I think all countries create these mythologies around them. So the American Constitution is, you know, you read the Constitution and you get transformed as a person. Um, as a historian, I can never get into the inner minds of the people I'm working with, but I can show that many people. Learned about it, sought to use it, and also tried to use the language outside court. So the sex workers, for example, lose before the Supreme Court in the 1960s. The Supreme Court comprehensively holds that you do not have a right to work as a sex worker under the Indian Constitution. Yet even today, when sex worker groups organize, they sort of hand out pamphlets saying Article 19 protects your right to sex work, despite what the court said. So there's a sense in which um, I think um, there is a public ownership of the Constitution and judges are not the only interpreters of it. And I think that's something that's important to recognize in in, in any any jurisdiction, right? So courts like to say that the arbiter is a final meaning, but there are many constituencies which interpret and uh, engage with it. In hindsight, the one thing I should have perhaps talked about more was the effect of partition um, and what it does to citizenship and how that plays out in many of these cases. Um, uh, And I didn't for reasons of time and thinking there was a lot of work on partition already. um, But given sort of current questions about citizenship, not just in India, but also in other jurisdictions. Um, What does it mean when... So the Indian Constitution gives rights to everyone, not just citizens. So what does it mean when non-citizens, or people deemed to be non-citizens, claim rights under the Constitution? The two questions I was asked, uh, one is that, how did this suddenly come into being in 1950? Uh, And the other was, what about the lawyers? So my other two current projects, one looks uh, written with Ornith Shani, a historian in Haifa University, looks at kind of public discussions around the constitution when it was being written. So what's happening outside the assembly hall? And my second sort of project, which is not just in India, but across the jurisdictions, looks at um, uh, who are lawyers who take up kind of politically difficult cases. And it sort of tells the story through a project about political or radical lawyering. Um, but I think those were important questions because this did not appear in a white. Uh, people had a certain kind of rights and constitutional consciousness, even prior to the constitution coming into force. And lawyers, India had the world's second largest number of lawyers after the United States in 1950. So the fact that there was this large pool of lawyers, perhaps who were not particularly knowledgeable about the Constitution or committed to it in any way, uh, but just saw this as yet another part of their toolkit,
0: which helped translate many of these claims into a kind of constitutional language. Well, Robert, thank you so much for for being a guest on the New Books network. Uh, the book is called People's Constitution, The Everyday Life of Law in the Indian Republic. Uh, I highly recommend- People check it out, and also uh, be on the lookout for for uh, uh forthcoming books. So thank you so much. Thank you, Caleb. It's really a pleasure. <laughs>